0: I'm Taryn Ward. And I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines.
1: We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the freedom of expression, or free speech, as it's sometimes known, to better understand the role that social media plays in our everyday lives and society.
0: Last episode, we started to trace the history of the freedom of expression and free speech. This episode, we'll pick up that history with the Enlightenment and work our way through to lay the groundwork to discuss the existing global framework next time.
1: So, um, so let's start with the the Bill of Rights, the first one. Um, <laughs> in England, in 1689, not often thought about much in the context of the Bill of Rights. I think almost everybody would take you to the, to the US Bill of Rights, including Wikipedia, if I did the search. But England, 1689, freedom of speech in Parliament. No interference or prosecution if you said something that was, you know, otherwise not great. It set a precedent in a way for protecting some parts of speech from from government interference. The opposition, one assumes, couldn't be prosecuted for <laughs> saying something about the prime minister, and it is a feature of you know UK politics today that you can say some pretty unpleasant things in parliament and get away of it. And and of course, this if the rule is good for the people at the top, then um, that that's going to influence other developments, you know, subsequently, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great way to talk about the Enlightenment period more generally, I think. So we're talking here about the late 17th and 18th century and some familiar names to many of you, Descartes, Locke, Voltaire, John Stuart Mill, Rousseau. You know, we see a lot of emphasis on individual liberty. So thought, speech, press, all these related things and democratic ideals more broadly. So when we think back to our introductory episode and the values that freedom of expression is designed to protect, we can see how this started to take shape in a new way during this period. And then, of course, we have the French Revolution and the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. This was in 1789. And the the important provision for us today is, is the following. The free communication of ideas and opinions is one of the most precious of the rights of men. Around this time in France, we see a lot more public discourse, political clubs, pamphlets, public debates, newspapers, often all political in nature. And this was becoming more and more common in in really becoming part of how how people saw themselves and identified themselves. and And it was hugely influential, of course, on what happened in the United States. You know, we had the American Revolution and then the United States Constitution, Bill of Rights. The full text of the First Amendment is worth is worth sharing. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So there's a lot packed into that statement. You have the establishment clause, the free exercise clause, the free speech clause, free press clause, assembly clause, petition clause, all sort of crammed into the single statement. Um so the free speech clause if we just sort of like wrestle that out is limited to the following. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. What could be simpler? We've we've looked back at history We've seen all of this come together. Now we have this very simple statement. Easy from here on out, right?
1: Oh, if only that had turned out to be true. I mean, you, when, you read, when you read that out, it, I thought well, that is such an economical way of, <laughs> of saying such important things. Like the, the, They just framed this beautifully, right? It was just, these are the things you cannot do. And all of them make sense. And that economy is brilliant, right? And, and this is we've discussed this offline between ourselves a lot a, a lot because we talk about American politics a lot, but you know, they assumed too much. I think the framers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights just assumed too much. Like it never occurred to anyone to say somebody who is being investigated for significant crimes or is a convicted felon shouldn't stand to be president or an elected official, because one assumes they just thought that that was obvious. And, and, and to be fair, you know, if people respect traditions and the rules and just the way the things are supposed to be done, that is true. But then you come, you know, get characters come along who sort of ignore the fundamental basis for the unwritten rules, um, and you you that causes chaos. So yes, it, that statement is very simple. The problem is that the issues around freedom of speech and free expression all lie in the nuance, which isn't covered by that very economical number of words, right?
0: Very true. And even the the wording of this is the root of, in many ways, the split between the European free expression approach and the American free speech. Um, so, you know, at this point in time, although these principles were, were floating around freedom of expression, free speech, and, and more than floating around, by now they were really deeply woven into the history and traditions of Europe and then the United States. Writing it down in this way was an important split. And this is where we have to really look at the wording because it's important. And I know this isn't the most exciting thing because we're looking at, you know, exactly how things are worded and how it fits together. But this really is important. So going back for a second to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, It was framed this way. The free communication of ideas and opinions is one of the most precious of the rights of men. This is a broad statement in a lot of senses, but in one important way that distinguishes it from the free speech clause in the First Amendment. It's not a freedom from, and certainly not explicitly framed as being a freedom from government, or with specific limitations. It doesn't specify limitations on anyone either, including governments, It simply marks out expression as one of the most precious of the rights of men. The Free Speech Clause is very different. It says the following, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. This is still broad in many ways, so many ways, and we'll dive into that, but it's not framed as a general principle. It's a very specific freedom, and a specific freedom that limits Congress's ability in particular to restrict free speech. Now, later, this would include state governments through the Incorporation Doctrine, which applies certain provisions in the Bill of Rights to the states through the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. But that core idea that the articulation of this right is a right against government interference or restriction remains. And this is why, although the changes that were happening in the United States were in many ways parallel to and even connected with what was happening in Europe, in France in particular, we see a clear gap between the idea of the freedom of expression in Europe and free speech in the United States.
1: It's so a really interesting nuance. Again, That the devil is in the detail, as he always is. But one of the themes that you sort of pull out of this, even going back to the Bill of Rights and the that established you know, that British parliamentarians could not be prosecuted for what they said, it was freedom, the freedom to say what you needed to say or what you wanted to say was fundamental to the democratic process that democracy was founded on the de- on debate and the exchange of ideas and arguing, potentially I imagine sometimes quite violently because oh. these are deeply held convictions, but not actually physically violently. Like that's that's the alternative, right? We'll fight about it with words in parliament or within the public square, or we can actually fight about it with cudgels or you know got the big guns later but that is absolutely fundamental right to the, to this and how as an american who's you know moved to europe the uk which is despite the intentions of some people in the uk still europe how how do you see those that that nuance in the difference between freedom of expression and freedom of speech actually play out in in everyday life and particularly is there is there something you can point out online that you say oh yeah this is different
0: I think there are a lot of different things. I mean, the way the freedom of the press is treated is, is one big example. In the US, it's sort of all lumped in together. And in Europe, people are a lot more willing to place restrictions on what the press can say and do. Um, they're sort of treated as a, as a special case that allows a little more interference. And, and again, I'm oversimplifying now, but I think that's that's one approach. I also have yet to hear a child in this country come home and say something like, you can't tell me what to say or not to say, it's my free speech, I have rights. And I think that's very much an ethos that that people in the US grow up with and carry with them um, without a lot of understanding or nuance. But this idea of, you know, of the rights that we have, free speech is sort of the one that, that... that people hold on to in a, in a special and different way. And right. I think, it again, the lack of understanding is, is not ideal, um, but it seems to be here one of many other rights that is balanced while it enjoys a special status in the US.
1: Right, right, because it's specifically called out in the first of the amendments, which is, you know, I guess that gives it a, a special place because they thought of it as special. That was the first thing they thought of, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was literally first and not by accident. So it is different. Now, since then there have been some attempts to bring this all back together. So in nineteen forty eight, we saw the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This was a declaration, not a constitution, not a treaty, but this was a significant milestone. So so the key points here are this idea that everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. This was really huge. In 48 countries voted in favor of this declaration, and it was a really diverse mix. So, just to name a few Afghanistan, Argentina, Canada, Colombia, Cuba, Denmark, Ecuador, Egypt, France, Greece, Haiti, India, Iran, Iraq, Luxembourg, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Pakistan, Paraguay, Sweden, Syria, Turkey, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Venezuela. Diverse in many ways, right? These countries from all over the world, very different populations, very different histories and concepts of free expression all signed on to this. Again, some of
1: those names you wouldn't expect to see
0: partially because it was a declaration so there was no there were no teeth to this and and I think sometimes Americans view the european idea of free expression in a similar way like we have this very clear amendment that says we have this right and who it protects us against the european free expression feels a little bit squishier to us and it feels like more of a declaration in and I don't think that's really fair or accurate, but but I think there is sometimes almost a, a confusion um, between declarations like this one in in law in in Europe. Not too long after, we had the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and this was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in 1966, and then entered into force in 1976. As of 2022, there were 173 parties and six additional signatories who have not ratified it. Many of these countries, though, have reservations, understandings, and declarations that limit the applicability. So although it is meant to have teeth in a way that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights didn't have, enforcement is, is not straightforward.
1: Yeah, isn't that? Isn't that always the way, you know, I, I, these organisations don't have a police force? The WHO doesn't have a police force. The UN doesn't have a police force. How are they going to enforce these things? So, great, we all agree. I mean, I think we can say this, that freedom of expression is important. Freedom of speech is important. 173 countries plus six hammers on, certainly agreed in 1966. So so what's the what's the problem? Well, I mean, even if we, even if we all agree, these core principles in the First Amendment, free speech clause in the US Constitution, and Article 19 in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. These principles are broad enough, and, and largely that's intentional to allow for other rights and to allow for changes in society and technology. But it means how they're interpreted and applied can, can vary quite a bit, and, and sometimes those variations are surprising.
0: Yes, and this is where it can be confusing and annoying, but also really really interesting. So a few quick examples. Let's let's start in Europe. So let's start with the European Court of Human Rights, a few a few cases. There's a case clarifying that freedom of expression encompasses not just information or ideas that are favorably received or regarded as inoffensive, but also those that offend, shock or disturb, pretty important. Another case that held a website liable for defamatory comments posted by users. Um, so this one is pretty shocking to Americans. A case overturning the conviction of a journalist who was convicted for aiding and abetting racial hatred because of an interview conducted with representatives of a neo-Nazi group. The the court in this case ruled that the conviction violated the journalist's right to freedom of expression. But the fact that a case even got this far, I think, would be surprising to a lot of people in the U.S. A case in favor of an employer who dismissed an employee after monitoring communications, including personal messages on a work-related account. And, you know, we, we also have to look at some some unusual or surprising outcomes in the United States. The first one, political spending by corporations, associations, and labor unions is apparently a form of protected speech under the First Amendment. There's a case upholding the right of the Westboro Baptist Church to picket military funerals with signs displaying, let's say, controversial and offensive messages, but deeply, deeply offensive, I would say hateful messages. And another case declaring that the government's refusal to register trademarks that might be seen as disparaging, in this case the name of a band, The Slants, violated the free speech clause. Some of these cases I was lucky enough to cover in law school. Some were decided after and I looked at on my own. But each of these cases was either surprising at the time or had a really important influence on our understanding of these rights. Or the facts of the case and the details around what happened were so shocking and interesting that it merited including them in this list. One of the really interesting things about this area of the law, though, is looking carefully at the facts of the case concerned. Why this case? How did this case make it to the highest relevant court? And thinking about whether and to what extent the facts made the difference. Hard cases make bad law, as they say. But they do still make law. And they can certainly sway public opinion one way or the other.
1: I mean, some of those are really egregious. Westbrook... to say they were offensive, as you sort of clarified, is a, a an understatement. They were dreadful, and it's me saying it, so anybody who doesn't know me will know how bad that is. But, you know, they were really bad. And and you would hope, or at least I would hope, that a, the, a UK court or a European court would have banned those, you would hope. But it is interesting, right? I mean, I, I'm just thinking about the, the difference between the US and the, the European approach, it, it, from what from what you've said, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but what you've said is Congress and states actually can't pass any law which limits the freedom of um, expression and, in, and includes the press, whereas in the UK and, and, and Europe, we can, which means that as social and political will changes, and, and there are downsides to this, of course, but as, as social mores change, we can actually pass laws that will say this now is hate speech and you are not allowed to say those things. You can't, you know, say Nazi supportive things in Germany. That's a long-standing law, for example, which presumably, given some of the protests you see on TV, is not a rule in the US or indeed in the UK, sadly. But, But maybe it's better that lawmakers, elected officials, are making law than... Having judges having to make those determinations on the facts of a case which as you said are in many cases very hard and therefore potentially leading to bad law I mean I'm not a lawyer and i I'm, I'm, I'm it just seems that way to me to me that, that you know perhaps it is better to be able to legislate and therefore change the law later than to 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 just hand this over to judges who are not elected obviously but what do you think I mean this is this is really your so- area.
0: Well, I think this is a really important point, and I'm I'm really glad you said this, because although what the First Amendment says is that Congress shall make no law, and, and that extends to, to other governments, that's not actually what it means at all. Congress and state governments make laws all the time that restrict our ability to say different things, where we can say them, when we can say them, um, if something is considered to be obscene, you know, they're... There are lots of exceptions to and, and even saying it as an exception isn't doesn't fully do it justice, but it's not the case that that there are no regulations in the us that concern speech that are made by regulators, by elected officials. In fact, they're all over the place. So you don't have to look very far. The question is whether, they have a good enough reason to really and and again huge oversimplification it's more complicated than that but but in a lot of ways that's what it boils down to is this the kind of speech that is excluded from protecting is really the first question and then if it's not can the government articulate a strong enough reason to, to put this restriction in place. And, you know, we'll dive in probably next time or the episode after that and, and talk about exactly what these exceptions are and exactly how this operates, because it is really, really complicated. But if I've left anyone with the impression that the first amendment means what it seems to mean on its face, it's, it's good to clear that up right away.
1: Because of course it doesn't. Of Um,
0: course it doesn't.
1: And that, that's why there's a Supreme Court and. appeal courts and all those other things, I guess. There is a definite, there is a different difference, right? I mean, the UK government I've, in my lifetime has definitely suppressed certain things like pictures of you know, the Princess of Wales, topless, were suppressed in the UK press, even though they were available online and in Europe. There were exposés about spy agencies that were not allowed to be published in the UK for a long time, but were published everywhere else. And, and it's not like international commerce in the internet doesn't mean really that those things spread. And I guess that is one of the problems that governments have now, it's that as we said in, in the beginning of the first episode, global free expression was developed at a time where there wasn't the internet. There weren't even necessarily roads. And now there are definitely roads, and there is definitely the internet. And that makes applying these rules difficult in, in the context of the 21st century.
0: Yes. In the UK example you just brought up is, is a really interesting one, because in so many ways, the UK and the US approach things similarly. But... But there are these other areas of the law where you can see that U.S. law developed as a reaction to the way the U.K. was doing things, and I think in some ways this is an example. And you know, when you think about the royal family in particular, we don't we don't have one of those in the U.S. for for one thing. Um, that's sort of the point of of the existence of the U.S. in the first place. But the idea that the way that restrictions on free expression have evolved in the UK reflect the fact that that this is historically a monarchy. And in the US, it was a reaction against that. And And so when you think about what the government can restrict and what they do in fact restrict, we're, we're, there are two very different paths. And I think when you think about where you see the, the biggest gaps, you can often trace it back pretty easily to, to that split
1: No that, that makes sense and to be fair um, to to the UK as well our press has behaved very badly in the past possibly worse than my experience of dealing with the North American press so some limits are are possibly not unwelcome by the populace I mean I think that most people in the electorate are favour some form of regulation they probably disagree on exactly what they want regulated which I'm sure we will get to in future episodes because that is the crux of the matter isn't it <laughs>
0: I'm sure. And speaking of future episodes, next time, we'll take a closer look at the existing freedom of expression global framework. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website.
1: Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones.
0: And I'm Taryn Ward.
1: Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines.